This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Killing the Exposition. Essential References. Marshalling Your Memory. And Lake Monsters. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we're sitting around the table, and someone is looking stunned because someone is looking dead. (laughs) There are a certain number of go-to reflex responses when presented with a non-player character, and sadly... I'm here to report that in some cases, that reflex includes murder. murder. And sometimes the non-player character was not merely a boat for copper pieces, but also a boat for information. And when that boat of information goes to the bottom of the metaphorical <laughs> pond... I hate it when an information boat sinks. You hate it when the information boat sinks. What do you do, Robin? How can you dredge up the information boat? Or can you? Uh, so, yes, yeah, so as, as you indicate, this is a, a time-honored dilemma in role-playing games. And uh, what your plan B is, I think, can vary based on the situation. And I was inspired to do this segment, which I arguably, I think, is long, long overdue, since it is a, a common phenomenon in role-playing games, where you have a character who's supposed to convey important information, and the players just kill off that character. And I think I may have had all future times when this happens will now pale in comparison to the perfection of this particular moment. Uh, because, uh, as, uh, as mentioned before, I am uh, doing the in-house play test of the Yellow King role-playing game. And uh, one of the premises of that game is that it actually takes place in four different time periods in which you play characters who are uh, linked over time or reality to uh, your other characters that you've played previously. So in this case, our, our mutual pal, Chris Huth, met his previous character. And the thing about Chris Huth characters is that any Chris Huth character is entirely justified at any time in killing any other Chris Huth character. I mean, that story, if, if a story has ever checked out in the histories of stories <laughs> checking out, that story checks out. 
Yes. And I'm, I'm by this point over various, uh, like a drama system game where there were alternate versions of various characters and so forth. I've become adept at playing Chris Huth characters as the GM. And so I managed to, uh, play the character <laughs> this in all his true full annoyance. And so, of course, Chris's reaction was to immediately pull out his gun and shoot the character dead on the spot, uh, because he was, being extremely hoothy. And uh, now I had a number of uh, choices available to me in this situation because I wasn't running a con game. It's part of a long running series. So is that uh, cop grass syndrome where everyone looks like the same person to you <laughs> asking for a friend, <laughs> a mutual friend? Yes. Um, so your first question becomes, how much do you allow, I wouldn't say punish the players, but allow the players to be punished? Allow the players to, to live out the consequences of their act. Exactly. Right. Because it's not punishment that, that, that implies some sort of, you know, a moral overarching structure that shouldn't be necessarily present in, in most role playing games. Right. Or, or another way, and that's a splendid way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that the laws of narrative that are punishing and you, the GM are merely in service to the, to the laws of narrative. <laughs> yes. Or that, that may be different yeah. ways of saying actually the exact same thing. Right. Uh, at any rate, uh, how much do you make them feel the consequences is, is exactly the question. And the answer to that, I think starts with how much time do you have? And so, uh, Ken, maybe you might want to, uh, uh, take over here and discuss how to plan B that situation when you don't have a lot of time, when you're not running a series, but you're running a one shot, what do you uh, do when this time honored thing happens and you uh, can't just make sure you, they get that information three weeks from now? If the uh, information could have been conveyed in a document, a diary, a letter, uh, anything, whatever the, I mean, if it's, if it's a, um, uh, if it's a one shot, they're really probably only conveying one piece of information because surely you did not intend an NPC to accompany the characters throughout the adventure, dribbling out information, uh, like, uh, like pennies put into a fortune telling uh, machine. You intended him to deliver the, the crucial plot development and then pat them on the butt and send them on the way, possibly with a plus one sword of some kind. Well, if he's dead, the information is in his diary. It's in a letter. It's in a notebook. It's in, you know, some sort of documentary form that is on his body because one thing that's going to happen they kill a guy they're going to search the corpse and if the corpse contains you know a, a touching picture of, of the dead guy and his golden-haired little daughter playing with a puppy or something that's great that tugs on the heartstrings and then they can follow the diary that says just escape from the haunted mansion of blarg which is full of kobolds and ghost kobolds if only i could find noble heroes who could go there and rescue uh, my golden-haired daughter from it and also pick up all those emeralds that kobolds leave around because someone could step on them and hurt their foot or whatever right whatever the dump was going to be you put it in a diary or a letter and then they can find it they still have the information maybe they feel bad about it and maybe there's a point along the way where if if the diary is like you know stops in the middle uh because he had to stop writing and they get to that point in the story and they're like oh this would have been handy to have had the rest of that information but that you you sort of figure out where later in the story you can have an information gap become a threat right and uh even if not uh you can kind of look at the pacing of your existing episode is are there other fun and and cool things that you can have happen without that information being conveyed to the players so uh, obviously if it's a bit of information about the current 
adventure, you need to do exactly that, is to find some other way to convey that information. You know, maybe the uh, character's handyman is attracted by the sound of the shot and runs up and asks what the trouble is. And, and then there's your moment of consequence in that you have to deal with this other character who's uh, shown up. And then uh, you can overcome that consequence in, in one way or another, whether you're sweet-talking them or um, overcoming them and interrogating them, and then reluctantly they spit out the information. And so if you need the information to get to them uh, right away or relatively quickly, um, and you can't think of the funnest possible way to convey that to them. So, uh, you know, a document may be a, a little less colorful. You also might want to create the idea that there was another bit of information that while not essential would have been really beneficial. And that's what they've missed out on. Right. So that, you know, when they do find the diary, you find that he was right in the middle of writing the sentence Fortunately, the amulet is located in the right when yes. they were interrupted, mm -hmm. uh, or you know, there's blood stains on it. You can't yes. read it or whatever. I, I have an excellent way to find the amulet, but I do not have room in this margin. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because I've already filled the margin with forty in uh, uh, detail because I'm going to get this published by Llewellyn. <laughs> in, in in your dreams, pal. <laughs> well, you know that, that's the thing about NPCs with information is they're they're very arrogant. Yes, and I guess that's the other. You could, as a GM, prevent this from happening by not playing your sources of information <laughs> yes. as annoying. Perhaps but... don't play them as a Chris Huth character. Uh, this uh, useful information, I'm sure, for the majority of our of our listeners, who are like, "Oh, great, I'm going to cross that off." Right. And on one hand, you know that that seems appealing, as if if you know that your characters react to the merest sign of annoyance with homicidal frenzy, uh, you can, I guess. You can plan for that. Sweeten up your uh, your GMCs. But on the other, the classic structure, though, in any sort of investigative game is that there is resistance to uh, giving information. And some people resist because uh, they're afraid, and some people resist because they don't trust you. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways that you can write a scene in which a character is initially reluctant to write information and then does. Uh, if you are at a loss for those, watch any rerun of Law and & Order, and the, and the first half hour is full of those scenes. But you, you could, you know, take those uh, preventative uh, measures. Um, however, uh, in this situation, at least, the stuff that he was going to reveal was like the big picture, or start to lead toward the big picture information that sort of defined the uh, this leg of the campaign and its connection to the previous sequence. And so uh, I felt uh, that there was... Uh, other cool stuff that could continue to happen, right? They didn't right. need to learn this stuff from him in order to defeat the monster of the week, but they would have had more context for the whole picture. So I could easily have delayed that and did delay that right. uh, for several more weeks. And I think that's, and that's where you can start having consequences take a little more shape is if you do have the area, the sort of the space to breathe, you're running it as part of a campaign. The information was not tactically critical, but maybe strategically very important. And that's where you can start having people say, well, obviously you talked to uh, Von Huth, right? And they're like, um, talked? Not exactly. It's like, <laughs> well, he's really the guy. If you can find Von Huth, you, you get him, he'll tell you the whole setup. I mean, I barely comprehend it myself. It's something about this haunted painting and maybe these emeralds and there was a ghost cobalt. I don't know. It was all very confusing, but Von Huth had it all, you know, right in his head. And yeah, so. And, and he knew where the amulet was. And he knew where the amulet do. was. That's, that's the, that's the prize. If we could only find the amulet, then everything would be all right. But only Von Huth had ever, had ever touched it and gained uh, insight thereby, I suppose. That must have explained why he, he knew so very much and was so helpful. I mean, obviously, he was a crusty guy on the outside. You had to get to know him. But, you know, 
his golden haired daughter, you know, um, uh, maybe she could tell you where he is. And another thing to keep an eye on is this is uh, one of those many, there, there are a whole raft of different situations in which the actions of one player character bring consequences down upon the head of the entire group. Yes. So uh, if the entire group has already, uh, if they have been the consequence, you know, if they then, if there's a big scene where everybody then comes down on the, um, character who's uh, shot the guy in the hat who was supposed to lead them to the, the Cobalt Warren, if that is entertaining enough, seems like enough of a consequence, and leads to other dramatic scenes in which maybe they extract a promise never to do that again, or they establish a new <laughs> protocol where you're not the one you're not the one that gets to talk to the next guy in the hat, uh, you can uh, decide that that has happened already in the storyline, and you don't need to then uh, rub it in with news of an amulet that they didn't get, because that's already happened and you don't want to uh you know belabor that point that the player stepped in and did it for you but uh if there uh doesn't seem if everyone else just sort of shrugs and goes yeah he was given a slip you know if they all seem down with it that's when uh you want to make sure that the uh, consequences affect the entire group because in a way at least retroactively it has become a, a group decision. So the um, uh, the other thing that you can possibly do about this, you got the the dead character who was the source of key information, necromancy. Depending on your game, um, it is entirely possible that a guy being killed does not necessarily take them off stage. They can appear to you in dreams if it's like a sort of a mythy game. Uh, they can um, uh, have someone summon up their ghost. The enemy can get a hold of the body in the morgue and say, finally, I have Von Huth and I can prize from him my his secrets. And then they can, you know, catch a bad guy and the bad guy's like, ah, you know, um, uh, uh, you don't understand what, what Von Huth knows or whatever. And they're like, knows Von Huth is dead. And they're like, ha ha ha, dead is not permanent. Don't you understand? you're fighting the necromancer or whatever and the continuing presence of a possible source of information from that one guy is still an open possibility in many games now the what we used to do back in the olden days of f20 is there used to be the very standard kill the npc cast speak with dead because then they can't lie to you and that was a that was a big time saver with your neutral evil parties um, not to recommend it uh, going forward because it seems pretty awful, but it did work. So there you go. That seems like a bit of a loophole. Uh, one thing you can do if you're not uh, bound with the strict rules of any particular uh, edition of D&D, they can then commune with, uh, you know, you can bring back the source of information as a ghost. Uh, but then if you kill them because he's annoying, well, he's back. <laughs> and now he's a ghost. Yeah. And he can and now follow he you around and continue to annoy you. And that's the uh, the, the, the consequence. So that now you've conjured him and it's like, oh, yeah, there's uh we have a spell called speak with dead, but we don't have a spell called get the dead to shut up. Yes. Well, we um, uh, we were planning. We were planning to use our perfect exorcism powder when we got to the amulet. But <laughs> yes, this amulet good for one exorcism. Yes. It has one power. It shuts up the guy who told you where to find it. Well, that's, you know, if you'd known that guy, you'd have known that this is the most powerful vital amulet in all the land. Yes, exactly. It's the uh, that rare ability of ghost shutting up. Uh, well, uh, before we, uh, we've been teasing Chris a bit, so we should note that uh, uh, he and fellow illustrator extraordinaire Rachel Kahn are going to be starting a uh, podcast uh, live streamy sort of thing where they're... Uh, creating characters and then and then illustrating them as well so uh, watch our uh, social media feeds and we will uh, promote that out to you uh, when it starts to drop yeah we will 
kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The calm atmosphere of leather bindings and cherry wood shelves welcome us into this soft, paradisiacal surroundings of the book hut. And today, Patreon backer Andy Young seeks guidance within the book hut, asking us, what are the source or reference books every Kartos fan should have in their library? Uh, Robin, do you wish to begin by discussing source and or reference books that you would recommend for our fans? Well, let's preamble this baby just a little bit. All right. Uh, it's an interesting question now, what you actually need as a reference book on your shelf versus what is now more convenient to uh, look up uh, on, on the magical internet. So, for example, previously I would have well, you got to have a really great world atlas. Yes. Well, Google Maps and Google Earth do that and with bells and whistles too. So the modern bookshelf stalker may want to have a beautiful uh, atlas for its own sake, but is it an essential uh, reference? So I tried to find things uh, at least at the top of my list before I got to the oddball entries <laughs> that are actually useful to have in print. But but the our answer to this question uh, would have been very different uh, 20 years ago, but then you wouldn't have heard it because we wouldn't be podcasting. Right. You would have had to wait for us to post it on Usenet. So I guess one class of reference books that's useful to have are the things that you can browse through to find an idea or something to look into uh, more deeply without knowing what you're looking for. If there's, you know, if you know your search terms for most things, you want to hit Google, but some things you want to be able to browse and find cool ideas in. So I would start with, uh, with a classic, which would be Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. Yeah, exactly. Now you still might want to get the a PDF of it because that would then be searchable, but it's basically, uh, a, as it says in the title, a, a dictionary full of historical mythic references, the origins of, uh, different turns of phrase. And uh, if you want a random idea for something that you can transform into a moment in a role-playing game, that's something where you can just flip to a random page, select a random entry, employ a, uh, a sous-son of uh, free association, and there you go. You've got a cool idea. And also, if uh, you do know what you're looking for, if you're trying to find the origin of an old-timey phrase or uh, find out uh, info on 
a mythological figure, uh, if you're not going to, you know, a more specific search source like Bullfinch's mythology, uh, Brewer's Dictionary Phrase and Fable, uh, in either electronic or in book form, in book form, it's actually propping up my monitor. It, it is essential, even if it's not propping up your monitor. And uh, the sort of um, 102 or 201 level of uh, Brewers is Funk and Wagnall's Standard Dictionary of Folklore, Mythology, and Legend, which is about 8,000 entries. You want to get the unabridged, not the abridged, because once you're getting a book, let's go. Um, and this, in addition to being a lovely sort of browse through for weird things people have thunk, uh, turns out to be where the Grateful Dead got the name Grateful Dead, because they were browsing through it and saw the legend of the Grateful Dead and said, that would be a great band name, as indeed it turned out to be. So if you're looking for a band name, that might also be a helpful thing. But also, if you're just looking for sort of mythological whatnots, this is an excellent book of mythological whatnots. Um, also in the category of classic reference texts that you do want to have in physical form and be able to browse is uh, Bartlett's Familiar Quotations. And uh, again, you want to get the the giantest drop-your-foot-on-it-and-break-your-foot version of the text as you possibly can. Uh, there are all sorts of quotations sites uh, online, but there's just something about finding a quotation on a given topic. Even if you use a keyword, it just doesn't quite enable you to uh, find things or especially to discover things uh, the way that, uh, that Bartlett's does. Uh, like a lot of classic texts, it is uh, skewed uh, toward uh, older, more classical, canonical uh, sorts of things, but sometimes that's what you need, and so uh, I would uh, still always have a copy of uh, Bartlett's uh, within uh, ankle-biting distance, which indeed it is. And one thing that is not super easy, there are beginning to be these on the internet, but even the, the good sites are still a little spotty. So I would recommend an excellent atlas of world history uh, in terms of where is everyone when, what's going on. I at least can't get uh, better than the sort of uh, 30,000 foot overview that you get from a good historical atlas. And there's a couple of series that are good. Uh, the ones by Colin McEvity are excellent, if uh, graphically very stark and not super enticing. And they have a narrative history on the facing page and the and the map, the, the base map on the others on the other page. Another one that I can absolutely recommend is the Anchor Atlas of World History, which is a reprint of a German Atlas of World History. And I don't know how many of you guys either are Germans or are familiar with the German tradition of map making, but Germans do not lay around and let maps just happen. They make it happen. And so the Anchor Atlas of World History combines a almost telegraphic timeline of world history on the right-hand pages with a whole bunch of thematic maps of what's going on in, you know, various sorts of things. It's by, um, uh, by Hermann Kinder and Werner Hilgemann. And, uh, it, uh, it, I'm sure in Germany it has some other title, but in America it was the Anchor Atlas of World History. Um, it's probably 15, 20 years old by now, but you can, you can dig it up. It's in two volumes. It's, uh, paperback sized. It's super easy to get to and, um, uh, provides you with that. Oh, I'm setting my game in Manchu, China, uh, during the Opium Wars. What's going on around Manchu, China? Bam, there you are. You're good to go. You don't have to, you know, sort of, hip-hop your way through uh, Wikipedia and figure out all the boundaries, you've got them nailed right there. Same deal with the Roman Republic or the Punic Wars or uh, Colonial America or whatever it happens to be. You've got a map, and that gives you a geography, and it gives you a place to have all the player characters be from who don't want to be from the actual campaign setting, because they never do. And uh, speaking of Colin McEvity, 
another thing that I find essential and is hard to find on the internet, uh, or at least I haven't, I haven't looked lately. Maybe there's a, a great version of this now, but is a historical timeline that shows you uh, when things are happening in different fields and in different places. So uh, because history being uh, what it is, people specialize in uh, particular regions and periods. But, you know, do you know what's going on in China at the same time that uh, the uh, papal schism is happening in Europe? Or uh, do you know that, uh, you know, oh, here's where the printing press was invented and this was what was going on in visual art at the time. So uh, I imagine there are a number of books that do that well. Uh, the one that I have is by Colin McEvity. It's called The Century World History Fact Finder. But I would imagine that uh, any other good version of that concept is something that you want to have on hand as a uh, historical super overview with a uh, visual timeline. Yeah, there's uh, there's another uh, a series of books called like The Timelines of Technology and The Timelines of America. Uh, they're, they're all pretty good, but the research in them is not necessarily going to be uh, top notch. You always want to double check anything you find in a lot of these compendia. Uh, McEvity does good work though. So I would, I would take that a little more, uh, recommended wise. My favorite version of that, uh, and this is something that is almost certainly to some extent been outmoded by Wikipedia, but, uh, the encyclopedia of world history, uh, which was done by a guy named Walter Langer, who was Way back in the day was running, uh, helping run the OSS's, I think, Middle East section, but now is dead and, uh, or William Langer. I'm sorry. I've, I've got his name wrong. Uh, Peter Stearns took it over and it's basically, it's a bunch of timelines. They're not in parallel, but they do provide sort of what's happening when for various, uh, topic areas. So in the same way that you can get a, a synoptic view of the geography by looking at historical atlas, you can get a synoptic view of the history by looking at that now. Uh, the country entries for many Wikipedia countries are pretty good for that, but many Wikipedia countries have gotten themselves into slap fights, and so you'll find someone has vomited forth their whole theory on medieval uh, Burma into the Burma section, and you're like, I just, I just want to know when the British showed up, and it's easier to get it out of uh, Stearns and uh, Langer's Encyclopedia of World History. I don't think that that's as mission critical necessarily. Uh, I mean, I find it, I found it mission critical for decades. Now, um, uh, it is pretty much a matter of, uh, of, of sorting through the Wikipedia article and trying to find the actually valuable dates. But if you don't know them to begin with, I recommend Stearns and Langer. So I'm out of staples. I'm down to my sort of more, uh, left field items. Do you have more staples that you want to get to before we, uh, go for the fringe topics? Well, I have, I mean, here's, here's of course the question. I think first of all, we can sort of put a, a little break and say the GURPS books. If you are looking for anything about a certain topic, see if there's a GURPS book on it because someone else has already done all this. This has been brought to you by GURPS books, <laughs> but uh, let's see. Um, uh, there's a, there's another um, sort of version of the encyclopedia of world history. That is the encyclopedia of military history by uh, the Dupuis who are uh, American military historians of the, la of the late last century. And that is uh, quite good in the same format and nails it down to who's killing who. And I also want to give a shout out to the weapons book by the diagram group in terms of things that it's just fun to look through. And this gives you a, a good synoptic overview of, Hey, when do swords stop doing that? Or when do guns start doing that? And uh, again, you can get into the weeds as deep as you want to on the internet, but this gives you at least a, a good solid thing. My game's set in 1600. What kind of knives does everyone carry? 
bang, you're, you're good to go. So that's, that's another good, uh, synoptic one. Uh, do you want to start getting weird? Uh, because my synoptics often are weird. Right. As you might guess. So I guess the ultimate weird synoptic then would be the complete works of Charles Fort. Right. You can get it again in a big, lovely, fat omnibus edition. And the reason to do that in uh, book form rather than electronically is again, so you can leap through it and poke your finger at a, a random item and turn that into a story hook. And the uh, the uh, edition that came out in, I think it was 1940, is also indexed comprehensively, which is very lovely. So you get that complete uh, Charles Fort. There's an index in it. And uh, who doesn't love an index that was probably looked over by Theodore Dreiser at one point? My sort of go-to standard reference, The Magician's Companion, a practical and encyclopedic guide to magical and religious symbolism by Bill Whitcomb from the good people at Llewellyn. And this is just... A book of correspondences. So you've got your seven, uh, Sufi Latifas or your seven planets or your seven houses of, uh, whatever. And it goes through everything from the four elements to the 91 eighth years, lays them out, tells you sort of a basic new agey post golden dawn notion of what that means. And you can dig as deep or as less deep as you want from there. But Bill Whitcomb is my, is my first gunshot if I'm doing something occult-wise. If it's in Whitcomb, then I'm I'm halfway to, to victory already. Something I find very useful as an adventure uh, writer or genre writer is the SAS Survival Guide. It's a little Collins gem book It's by an author named John Wiseman, and it tells you all about the various ways that the natural environment wants to kill you and mm-hmm. what you can possibly do to uh, prevent it from doing so. Uh, so that's a, a great little source of all kinds of uh, A, physical hazards, and B, cool, smart things that the protagonists uh, can do uh, in order to survive the uh, hazards. So it's like uh, you're in a drought and you've got a watermelon. Slice it open. Put it on your head. That'll save your life. In that in that context um, uh, about how things are trying to kill you, I recommend the How Done It series. For some reason, we have a lot of How Done It's on how to murder people and get away with it in our house. <laughs> Uh, the Writer's Guide to Poisons, uh, The Writer's Guide to Forensic Medicine, The Writer's Guide to Crime Scene Investigation, lots of those, very few so of The which... Writer's Guide to Poisoning Ken seems a little on, on the nose, it, though. Well, it, I would it's, question a, it's, that a, acquisition. it's a narrow, it's a narrow demo, but they are devoted. Um, uh, you think killing Chris Huth is a broad demographic. Oh my God. <laughs> so the How Done It series by and large is, is, is an excellent one and you can sort of narrow it down. There's sort of a broader book called How Done It, how crimes are committed and solved. And then there's like, um, a bunch of the How Done It series that get down into specifics depending on what you care about. And, uh, I guess we could talk about this all day. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to, uh, conclude with one, uh, sort of left field choice. And I bet you have another one as well. And uh, this, <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> yeah. That, this one is less about, uh, uh, it is a reference book that if you are a, a young Ken and Robin listener and wish to become erudite, I would suggest, uh, reading kind of cover to cover an old book from like, I think it's from the sixties by a guy named Hiram Collins Hayden. And it's called the thesaurus of book digests. And it's just a listing of, uh, what the author deemed to be canonical works of mostly English, but also, uh, European literature in, uh, not just, uh, literature though, but also the sciences. So it's just a list of the important books and praises of what they're all about. And so, um, I read this, uh, flip, you know, bought, found a cheap copy at a bookstore, uh, cause it's a public 
I guess it was public domain by then, or, or mm-hmm. it was remaindered or something. But uh, as a teenager, I bought this. I read it basically cover to cover, and that gives you a really great grounding in what the uh, important books are. And uh, you can pass off a lot of... Uh, you can seem knowledgeable uh, just by reading this book. So that's the Thesaurus of Book Digest by Hiram Collins Hayden, as in the uh, same spelling as the uh, composer Hayden. Ah, well, there we go. Mine is uh, either more uh, drilled down or more universal because it is Godwin's Kabbalistic Encyclopedia by David Godwin, also from the good people at Llewellyn. And what this does is it gives you the Kabbalistic equivalents for a whole lot of numbers and the numerological equivalents for a whole lot of words in Hebrew and to a lesser extent in Greek. And the Godwin's edition from Llewellyn contains uh, Crowley's Library 777 in the back of it, which is the other great uh, Kabbalistic compendium. So it is a one-stop shop for figuring out what number, what the number means magically. And that can give you secret meanings. It can give you codes. Or if you're playing a game that is infused with Kabbalistic magic and good for you, if you are, it can give you, you know, what kinds of angels or beings are inhabiting what kinds of objects and things. It's, uh, it's great fun. Uh, I, I, I love it truly. And it is not the sort of thing that you can find online, except of course, I think that you can find a PDF of this online because people are monsters, but I recommend buying it for God's sake, thumbing through it and using Godwin's Kabbalistic encyclopedia to understand what the numbers actually mean. And according to my mystical numbers, it's time to, Head through a commercial and see what's on the other side. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Andrew Cowie. JC Toodles. Yadge from Edinburgh. Daniel Dunlap. And Nikolai Hansen. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time Patreon backer Frank Turfler Jr. asks uh, not so much Robin, but very much Ken, 
Uh, this is a, a two-part question. First part we'll dispense with quickly. It's a multiple choicer. Ken, <gasps> you are so quick to improvise history into gameable story arcs, while I often struggle with remembering my own name. Is that a learned skill or just a natural talent? And and Frank, just, here's a mnemonic. Your name is the same as your dad's. Yeah, that's right. That That's simple. But, but Ken, the, the broader question, learned skill or natural talent? I think that there is a degree of both. It is, uh, you ask a, a like a, a jazz musician or a great athlete, you, you say, how did you get like that? And part of it is practice, practice, practice. And part of it is just born with really great rhythm or really great, uh, long muscle twitch fibers or whatever you, it happens to be. You ask Gretzky, how do I win at hockey? And he says, well, put the puck in the net. Put the puck in the net. Exactly. Well, asking Gretzky is a, is a level of wisdom that I don't think we're, we're capable of. Of introducing people to at this early stage of the podcast. Um, maybe episode 600 will be the Gretzky hut. Anyhow, I was born with a trick memory, uh, eidetic uh, photographic memory. My mom claims I could remember where on a page I'd read something. Thanks to years of devoted drinking, I have killed a lot of it. But in the interim, I also did a lot of riffing. I ran a lot of games. I talked with a lot of fellow history fans and, and history buffs for several years. In grad school, I hung out with my uh, collaborators on GURPS Alternate Earths, Mike Schiffer and Craig Newmeyer, and we played freeform jazz improv alternate history games with each other, which, again, <laughs> I cannot recommend necessarily as a way to do anything except get better at making up alternate histories, but by right. gosh, does it do that for you? It was fine training for our nerd trope feature. Yes. It was, and it was, and it was great fun because Mike and Craig are delightful, but it's, I, I, I don't think you can just go out and get Mike and Craig. You have to go out and get your own, uh, alternate history, uh, fanatics and then play stump the band with each other for the better part of five years. Uh, and that will, that will get you good at it, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, the other, the other half of the, of the equation or third of the equation is interest, right? If you're, it doesn't matter how talented you are at it and it doesn't matter how long you do it. If you don't care about it, you're not going to get any good at it because you got other things to do. So find out parts of history that interest you. I assume Frank Turfler Jr. is interested because he's asking how to do it. But perhaps those of you who do not have such a memorable name are saying, I don't know, maybe I want to do that, but perhaps I would like to do literally anything else with my life. Well, this brings us to the second part of the question. If it is something that can be learned, and your answer is, well, kind of, yeah. uh, what techniques, other than voracious reading and study, uh, which we can take as read, can we use to improve that sort of improv? So if you don't have an eidetic memory, but perhaps cheat your way to having a memory, how do people go about doing that? Um, I think one of the things that you can do uh, is one of the things that I do with topics that are not topics that I have uh, read widely and broadly on. Pick one thing that you suspect will come up a lot and learn a lot about it. So this is not voracious reading and study. This is focused reading and study. So it's still sort of, you know, part A. But if you, for example, know that the Templars are going to come up wherever you plan to talk, sort of know that the Templars will connect you up to Freemasonry and know that sort of identify that connection, know that they connect back through the Crusades, know a little bit about how they connect to the Crusades, know about their trial, know about Friday the 13th, know about the, the curse on Pope Celestine, know about all the sort of fun little bits around the Templars so that if someone mentions something that's not the Templars, you can say, ah, this connects to the Templars. And suddenly you seem super smart because you've added another dimension that they didn't know when all it was, was you just know about the Templars. So my, uh, my goal is to have five minutes of conversation about anything that can then link to something. I have more than five minutes of conversation on. 
if I want. And you can do that too, because it doesn't take a tremendous amount of reading and study to know enough to get the juices flowing enough to spark the next gap to something you already know. So figure out something that's tangential to what you already know, learn that, and that will let you link back through into your home ground. It it turns out that there is still a lot science has to learn about how memory works. For example, very recently, the long-standing assumption that you uh, form a short-term memory and then through some ill-defined process, it eventually then gets moved into long-term memory turns out not to be correct and turns out to be one of those many things that someone just sort of airily theorized 150 years ago and was just taken as if it was true. But it turns out that the brain makes two copies of a memory, stores one in short-term, one in long-term, and it sort of works in parallel. But one of the ways that memory works is by association, is that you, if you can sort of trigger something, then other associations will flow in. And I do not claim to have an eidetic memory, so I really do have to cheat. And the way I cheat is by doing research and then writing enough notes to trigger a series of other recollections. And so, you know, once you uh, do all your reading on the Templars, the trick is to find a way to cement that uh, so that uh, there are little memorable hooks that you uh, can then recall later. And I think you're going to greatly increase the chance of uh, remembering something that you've read if you take basic notes of sort of a gist of what it is. So if you're you know, learning Korean history, you know, make a little uh, jot list as if you're taking a course and, you know, here's the the different periods of Korean history. And I'm just going to note down three things about each or two things about each. And it's uh, partly this is something you can go back to and check, but also um, hopefully you will trick your brain into to retaining something that doesn't necessarily have a giant emotional resonance to you because uh, the brain still mostly wants to remember things about, uh, you know, food and attractive members of uh, the human species who you want to get with and, uh, and, and facts that don't have an emotional valence. You uh, sort of have to work harder to get them uh, uh, into that storage space. And I think all of us as nerds have things that we remember really well. Yeah, I guess if you could imagine Natalie Portman telling you about Korean history. Exactly. That would work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might get distracted from Korean history, I grant you, but, you know, give it a shot. And it also depends on a couple of it. Uh, memory depends on getting enough sleep in terms of being able to access your memories. I've been sleeping poorly lately, and so I found, you know, even the names of, uh, you know, people I sh- or places I should be able to call to mind, I've found myself gapping out on. That's a crap bit of advice. Uh, get better sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. Uh, yeah. If, if, if I could, I would, right? Yeah, right. Don't do that. And, <laughs> and, uh, but sometimes I do have the experience of, you know, if I'm working on a really complex project, as I am now with the Yellow King, which has, it's a role playing game that divides into sort of four mini role playing games, and I'm doing a lot of project management on it. That guess what? Since I've been working on that, I've been finding it harder to memorize other things. And I definitely know that when I'm working on a design, a lot of stuff just goes into short term memory, it doesn't go into long term memory, and I have to look things up in my own uh, uh, rules book. So, Again, it's memory is a tricky thing, man. Yep, it's a monster. Uh, the other way to do this is maybe come at it from the other side because the key is not to memorize things about Korean history. That sounds boring. The th- the thing that uh, Frank Turfler Jr. wants us to do is to be able to improvise it into gameable story arcs. So have eight, ten. I mean, 
the, the classic uh, imaginary number is 36 plots. I don't think you need all those, but have eight or 10 go-to story arcs that you're really fond of running and then look for that pattern in whatever it is you're reading about. And if you're looking for the Robin Hood story, the King Arthur story, the Star Wars story, the Romeo and Juliet story, the King Lear story, whichever stories you like best and feel are the most pregnant with game possibility, because people are people and more because brains are brains, you will start seeing those patterns in Korean history and the Templars and whatever it is you're looking for. And that will let you arrow in and say, oh, while this seems to be a bunch of nonsensical trivia about people I don't care about, this guy's hot for that guy's wife. Now it's we got King Arthur going. We got Uther Pendragon. We can make that story. And if it doesn't happen to fit exactly, well, that's where you add the twists that make your players go, ooh, this is an interesting version of Robin Hood. Or you just do regular Robin Hood and trust that they haven't been researching Korean history the way that you have. Yes, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know a little bit more than the than one player in your game. You only have to know more than the rudest player in your game, even. Often, if if the player who knows more than you is polite and good-natured, you can get away with it. And then they come up to you after the game and they say... FYI, this, that, and the other thing are not how you put it in the game. And then you say, great, how do I fix it? Uh, retcon it going forward. How do I make it retroactively true? And then they will help you because that's what people do. They want to make the game better. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's another possibility. And if you get the, if you get the ability to recognize story as it appears in history, uh, then you are halfway to making story out of history already. Uh, well, speaking of rudeness, it's time for us to rudely abandon Frank and head uh, through this upcoming commercial uh, and then uh, satisfy uh, further demands of other Patreon backers. Put the puck in the net, Frank. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time once more for the Elliptony Hut, or should I say, the Elliptony Cottage, because this time we've relocated to uh, a dock in which we and the uh, Grey Alien and the Nordic Alien and the Alien Big Cat can all sit there and we can dangle our feet and or pseudopods and or uh, paws into the uh, relaxing waters of a beautiful lake because uh, Patreon backers Darren Dumay and Doc Cross have teamed up to ask us to talk about lake monsters. And can uh, I guess the archetypal lake monster, of course, is the Loch Ness Monster. The right. First, yeah, classic. Uh, classic. Although, surprisingly, uh, in terms of contemporary documented dated sightings, the Loch Ness Monster story begins in 1933, which yeah. is uh, 
There are older documented sightings of lake monsters in fresh new North America compared to uh, ancient old Scotland. But uh, what do people maybe not know about uh, Nessie to start off with? Um, I think, well, one of the things that they don't know about Nessie is what you just said, that, that the sightings go back to 1933 and that's it, which is apparently when they built a road along the south shore of Loch Ness. And before that, you couldn't get very easily to Loch Ness. Uh, people who lived in Castle Urquhart on the shores of Loch Ness apparently never looked out the lakeside or didn't ever see anything. The other thing that, that people don't know about Nessie is that the one commonality of every time she has been seen is not the long neck, but humps. Nessie is humped. Whatever else is going on with Nessie, she is. She, uh, so we we have that that plesiosaur image in our heads because of the 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 the, the phony film, but um. Uh, the eyewitnesses all describe Nessie as having humps. So if you are at Loch Ness and you see something with humps, it's probably Nessie. If you see something without humps, it's probably some sort of British security installation running a fake submarine to fight um, uh, Cthulhu at the bottom of the lake. And don't worry about that. Right. And that's unusual for a lake monster that there is a consistent anatomical feature that keeps getting mentioned because uh, one of the things we're going to discover about lake monsters is that they are uh, polymorphous. Sometimes they, you know, the same monster can be recorded as sometimes looking like a walrus and sometimes like a snake and sometimes like a canoe. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Our uh, colleague James Wallace uh, once helped look for uh, Nessie. Yes. And uh, has a story that uh, that is his story. We should not tell his story. But uh, it sounds like if you're on Loch Ness in the middle of the night and things start a moving. Uh, you can come to some pretty alarming conclusions about uh, what Nessie might want to snack on. Yeah. But anyway, let's, uh, what is our, our big North American uh, lake monster? Would that be a champ in Lake Champlain? I think that most lake monster aficionados agree that it's either the lovely and talented champ in Lake Champlain, Vermont, and New York, or uh, Ogopogo in Canada's own Lake Okanagan, right? I think that those are the two famous ones. Yes, uh, uh, Lake Okanagan. Uh, is the uh, home to uh, Ogopogo. Uh, uh, this is a, a monster that, first of all, is recorded in uh, indigenous peoples' uh, uh, folklore and mythology. So both the Salish and the Chinook knew that there was uh, something swimming around in Lake Okanagan. Uh, the Salish called it Nahaha-Itik, uh, which I'm undoubtedly mispronouncing, and the uh, Chinook knew it as the Wicked One. So lake monsters in general seem sort of... Uh, you know, passive and not sinister and kind of, you know, more like uh, mystery animals than uh, sources of evil. But according to the Chinook, Ogopogo was uh, bad news. Um, modern sightings, that is, sightings by uh, Westerners who wrote down the date, uh, started in the 1860s. Uh, and there was a big rash of sightings in the 1920s. The name Ogopogo comes, there's an Ogopogo song. Uh, somebody in a Rotary Club in 1926 uh, adapted a uh, English music hall song to be about uh, the uh, Okanagan uh, lake monster. As we've uh, as we've noticed and will notice, the main thing that you need if you are a lake monster is a cutesy name that is possibly a derivation of the lake that you live in. Uh, but Ogopogo is a little bit uh, different, uh, and that's because the uh, the pogo stick craze was on at that time, and I guess that just sort of uh, <laughs> sort of rhymed. Sure, yeah, why not? There's uh, a film of uh, of Ogopogo from 19, uh, 1968, a mill worker named Art Folden 
took 53 seconds of color 8mm uh, film uh, of uh, something uh, moving in the water. And so uh, Canadians also like to claim Champ because a tiny portion of Lake Champlain juts into Canada. But that's sort of like our trying to claim David Byrne because he went to school in Hamilton for a year. So right, that's, or uh, Alexander Graham Bell because he stopped off in Nova Scotia. People will argue more at the Bell Point. Uh, you know, we're Bell getting off topic. The, so tell us about Bell Champ. Bell invented the telephone, so that is pretty awesome. But anyway, Champ is a, a wonderful lake monster who, according to some books, was cited by Samuel de Champlain. That turns out probably to be a lie. Um, we don't know he didn't cite it, but we're pretty sure he didn't write it down. It's, it's too neat, isn't it? It is too neat. Uh, the Abenaki Indians uh, called it Tatoskok, um, which is uh, pretty great. Um, the earliest documented sighting of Champ is in 1819 by a Captain Crum. Uh, in 1883, the sheriff, Nathan Mooney, uh, cited it. And uh, his coming forward... Uh, led to lots of other people saying, "Oh, well, now that the sheriff has seen it, I don't, I don't feel bad." The the monster, a uh, champ, has a red uh, stripe around its neck, and according to Captain Crum in eighteen nineteen, a white star on its forehead. Sheriff Mooney merely described white spots on it. P. T. Barnum, one of the great American heroes, offered a reward for the uh, bringing in of Champ, which did not apparently happen, but would be a great story hook for our putative burned over district game. Uh, Champ has been photographed in 1977, has been videoed in 2005, and people have put, uh, receive hydrophones. That's the word I'm looking for, for God's sake. Uh, put those into the water and they've heard weird noises underneath Lake Champlain. And obviously if you hear a weird noise in a lake with a lake monster, that's pretty much, I mean, that, that, that's legal proof, right, Robin? Uh, yes, uh, yes. absolutely. If any sonar anomaly, any, uh, uh for example, there's, uh, uh, there's a, a late breaking uh, lake monster. Uh, in Canada, the the real locus of lake monsters is uh, British Columbia out on the West Coast. I don't want to cast dispersions on my uh, beloved West Coasters, so I'm not going to indicate that uh, a statistically greater fondness for the herb has anything to do <laughs> with making it more likely that you uh, see and document and talk about uh, lake monsters, I'm sure. It's uh, an entirely scientific interest in uh, having a, you know, something for your local tourist board to market. But, for example, there's one in uh, Lake Cameron, which is a lake on Vancouver Island. It's a lake on an island. That's cool. Um, if, if only there was so, an island on the lake on the island, then you'd have something. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in Lake Cameron, uh, obviously, there dwells, or supposedly dwells, Cammy, uh, who was uh, supposedly seen or sonared uh, in the 2000s. Also, just... In the uh, in the bay, uh, this would be a, a I guess relatively less common uh, saltwater lake monster. I guess <laughs> uh, with uh, Caddy who lives it's in Cabro Bay, estuary uh, monster. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, a fairly built up uh, suburban area now. So basically, he's your he's an exurban lake monster. Um, <laughs> he's you know he used to be a, a, a city lake monster, but then you know kids needs the yard, so he moved out to the estuary. Everything's right. cool. We also share lake monsters. Uh, speaking of lakes that have a slightly greater claim to being both American and Canadian than Champlain, uh, we share Lake Ontario, which has uh, a lake monster, and Lake Erie, which has a lake monster. Lake Erie's monster is Bessie, who is admittedly in the south bay of Lake Erie, the American part, but still, probably being a lake monster, swims all over the lake, does whatever she wants. Um, I'm not going to tell her she can't go to Canada. That would be an awful thing to say. And then uh, Lake Ontario has Mussy, who is in Musk 
Muskrat Lake. No, Muskrat Lake is, is near is in, Ottawa. Is in Ontario. Okay. Uh, Lake Ontario has Kingsty. Uh, near one hopes Kingston. Um, and then also, uh, a, uh, Iroquois legend called Gassiendietha, speaking of people who are mispronouncing lake monster names. And, uh, that is also in Lake Ontario. So maybe Gassiendietha and Kingston are the same lake monster. Maybe they're rival ones, right? Like, uh, in hockey and they get, they get together and they fight. Now, now I have to say, I live on Lake Ontario. I have not heard of either of those two. Okay, so well, I, mean, uh, I guess we won't say. First of all, your uh, Iroquois uh, cred is not what it ought to be. Yeah, I will well, say we're, that we're about not you. Say, we'll not say that they're lesser lake monsters; just that they're shy and retiring Canadians. Let's right. say that. Yeah, let's just say that, um, uh, or that maybe they hang around in the American part of Lake Ontario, and you don't pay that much attention. Um, the uh, the various lakes up in uh, New York, the Finger Lakes, uh, a lot of those have their own uh, lake monster, uh, which might be the same lake monster or it might be a different lake monster i'm not sure but uh there are lake monsters in uh lake seneca which is called the seneca nessie there is a lake monster in cayuga lake and there right. is a lake i'm sure monster. the seneca nessie is senny senny come on people yes what's wrong with you and um uh the lake uh, onondaga monster uh was called mosquito confusingly enough but it was the tuscarora indians who named it that not i think the people of Lake Onondaga, who probably know all about mosquitoes and don't like them either. But the Tuscaroras, of course, came up from the south. And so when they come up from the south to join the, the Iroquois Confederacy around the, the lakes, they're looking out and saying, what the hell is that? And everyone's like, oh, it's probably just a mosquito. Don't worry about it. So maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. But there are lakes in all of those. And then um, uh, Old Greeny is the lake a monster in um, uh, Cayuga Lake. And so the, uh, the old green, the rare lake monster has a cute name that is not a diminution of the lake of the lake. Yes. And, um, uh, Seneca Nessie and, um, uh, uh, mosquito. So those are all in the finger lakes, which is right up there in upstate New York. Um, and probably thanks to, uh, there being lake monsters. That's why the terroir is so good for Riesling. Right. Um, and, uh, many of the, uh, the lake monsters, we sort of imagine them having the same, a basic, uh, ill-defined polymorphous, uh, anatomy with the, the, the humps and maybe a neck and maybe they're a snake mm -hmm. or maybe they're a bunch of seals hanging out together. Uh, but there are a couple of, uh, more specific ones. You have an alligator monster in Alkali Lake, Nebraska. What can you tell us about that? I mean, I don't have it, but yes, there, there is an alligator monster. You have it on the list. I have it on the list. Uh, there is an alligator monster in Alkali Lake, Nebraska. It was spotted in 1923. Uh, by a uh, sober citizen of Nebraska, which I'm sure there is one of. Um, uh, is, his name is Johnson, which does not necessarily convey a great deal of confidence. Um, uh, it, it was gray. It has a horn between its eyes, and it emits a distinctive and unpleasant odor, which may just be the consequence of living in an alkali lake, but it may be that lake monsters smell weird, uh, which is something that people report when they talk about Nessie also, is that there is a sort of a fetor or a stench that accompanies Nessie's appearances. And that's another way you can tell a real Nessie sighting from a fake Nessie sighting. Right. And and Sasquatches, of course, have that too, which suggests that that's actually the, the sort of uh, smell of them coming in from another reality. Right. So that, that's that's uh, the, like the ozone uh, from uh, the teleporter or whatever. Right. Um, and another really weird one-off, uh, also on Vancouver Island, uh, see previous note about herb, uh, is the fetus lake monster, uh, which is a, a gill man or lizard person. There we uh, go. That, yeah. So, now we're um, talking. and has been seen once. So we know that happened. Right. Um, there is also a, uh, 
uh, sort of a eel-shaped uh, monster, more standard in Flathead Lake, uh, Montana. And Flathead Lake also, I believe, has a tiny tip that touches Alberta. So uh, once more, we can have a pretend Canadian monster. Uh, it has a round head, though. So it's an eel body, but a bowling ball-shaped round head. So that's sort of weird. And then it also has humps reported in some of its sightings. Its sightings go back to 1889 by a guy who sailed on a lake steamboat called the, the U.S. Grant. And if you can't believe a guy who's the captain of a lake steamboat, then I, I pity you. Uh, the most recent sighting that I have for the Flathead Lake Monster is 2016. So uh, the Flathead Lake Monster, who doesn't have a cool nickname, and get on that, Montana. Flatso. Let's go on Flatso. Flatso. That's good. Yeah. So uh, uh, Flatso was last sighted in 2016. So he's still around, or, or perhaps this is the grandson of the original one, but uh, he's still hanging out. Lake Monsters, because the lakes are generally ecologically not suited for the population of enormous predators, the assumption is that Lake Monsters are immortal or that they go and they sleep at the bottom of the mud of the lake for uh, decades like carp do sometimes. Uh, and then they wake up and they're just as good as before and they go up and there's another rash of sightings and then they get distracted or bored or, or hungry and they, or, or they've, they've eaten enough food and then they can go down and sleep in the bottom of the, of the mud. So the, the, I think the life cycle of the lake monster is, except for like the really big lakes, like, uh, the, the great lakes that they have to sort of, um, show up every few decades and then go back down into quiescence and torpor because you just, you just can't have a breeding population of enormous eels in a lake uh, as small as Flathead Lake or Champlain or Loch Ness. Right. And this is where we start to get into, uh, you know, coming up with a true elliptonic explanation for these animals don't actually act like real animals. So, you know, maybe they're swimming in from another dimension or, uh, you know, there is something indeed uh, mythical about them. Uh, and that sort of also speaks to the thing about them as uh, characters in a role-playing narrative, which is it's they're cool cryptological uh, entities, but they're not particularly threatening. Um, you may be scared if you're out on a dinghy in the middle of uh, a lake uh, with your sonar and suddenly something comes up from the deep. But in terms of, you know, a hardened group of player characters uh, who, when they see a monster, kill it for its experience points and then see what's in, you know, how many coins are inside it, it's not going to be sort of the main feature of an adventure unless you get your gill man, right? So, or your uh, PT Barnum has sent you out to capture it for right. you. But even even then, there's got to be some other source of conflict other than, you know, just go right. capturing an animal. And so uh -huh. uh, the idea that these lakes are sort of nexus points that lead into another reality or allow uh, reality, uh, if there has enough of a mythological backing in it, to somehow immunitize that uh, that's what gets you into your story, that the uh, lake monster is a sign or symbol of... Uh, indicating that the presence of some other possible menace and that's the the real source of, of conflict because you know you can't just you're just not going to have a big uh throw down with ogopogo i think i think we do need to mention though because our buddy john kavalik will be sad if we don't that lake mendota in madison wisconsin has a lake monster named bojo who was first sighted in 1883 and terrified a fisherman but in 1917, it licked the feet of a college co-ed. So perhaps <laughs> so it's, it's not a bit just of a perv. It's it's not just Vancouverians who have been hitting the herb. Perhaps it's Bojo who has also been enjoying a little uh, special kelp. Well, I'm, I'm going to say to John, I don't even believe that lake exists. I've seen no evidence. Right? Of it. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. When I say lake, 
uh, near Madison, obviously giant quotation marks that uh, they have, they have a thicket that they believe is a lake. And once you've believed something's a lake, why not believe there's a lake monster there? Yeah. That's what well, I said. I guess, in, I guess we don't have time to uh, speak of other up and coming Canadian lake monsters like, uh, Joey Driftwood, Eunice, really a swimming moose, or uh, Floaty McBeer can. <laughs> he's a he's he's a he's a good lake monster. Uh, yeah, is Floaty. As, as long as you don't understand distance perspective, he's uh, he's pretty impressive. Um, so I guess that brings us to the end, uh, not only of our survey of lake monsters, uh, but of another podcast. So we will join you all, folks, uh, next week. And until then. Uh, I believe we can go pat ourselves in the back, Ken. Yes, we can. Uh, and feel carefully. Oh, wait, there's a lake monster over there. Get out your camp. Oh, you don't oh. have a smartphone. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'll, I'll take a picture with... Uh, that's not going to work. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Train your sonar into a frigid tarn alongside such patrons as... Andrew Young. Drew Eichholz. Daniel Callahan. Daniel Markwig. And Derek McMullen. Snag Cannon Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs coming soon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about style.